0: Our text this morning is going to be from Romans 6, 5 through 11. You can find that on page 942 in the Bible in the chair in front of you.
1: You may be seated. Glad you're all here this morning. Again, I'm uh, Pastor Ransom, and uh, we are continuing in our series covering Romans 6. We're in week number two of that. Um, talked with the kids a few moments ago about Adam and Eve. I've been doing some uh, pre-study. We're going to be doing starting Genesis in Advent this year. I'm really excited for that, doing a little bit of study in that. Uh, here and there, and so my mind has been on Adam and Eve this week uh, a little bit, and it's actually very appropriate to start talking about what we're gonna talk about today by starting with Adam and Eve, starting with Adam and Eve. So let's think about what we know about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the first created people, they lived in the Garden of Eden, they had everything they need, they had sustenance, they had purpose, they had one another, Uh, They had regular fellowship with God. They were, imagine this, they were living their lives for their purpose. (laughs) They knew their purpose. They were living their lives for the very thing they were created for. Imagine the satisfaction that comes with that. Adam and Eve walked with the very source of life, and that could have gone on for eternity. We, in fact, we don't even know how long it, it went on. We just know that it started, there was a middle. We don't know how long that middle was, and then there was an end. What was that end? Uh, they decided to go their own way. You can read about this in Genesis 13. Satan came, he introduced some questions, and like he told the kids today, Adam and Eve came to some very wrong conclusions to the, those questions. Questions they were asking were something like, well, what if there's something more than this? What if there's like a next level thing? What if I could have what I have right now without God? What if I could just not have something and rules hanging over my head? What if I could just have this? And so what do we learn from scripture? That the pursuit to keep what they had but lose God lost them everything. It lost everything. It says in Romans 5, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So what's the result? Every human being from that point forward has been separated from God at birth, separated. Separated from God's plan, separated from God's will, separated from God's life-giving power, and so every human since then desires to go their own way. Every human from that point forward has been set to die from sin, and the reality is even after that death, the punishment for that sin continues. That's the reality of every human being when they're born. It's a reality. It's a stark reality, but it's the reality. But for some, specifically for God's people whom he's chosen, there's an alternative reality. An alternative reality. That verse finishes this way. So remember, death reigns through one man. Much more, it says, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man Jesus Christ. So what's the point here? Humans were with God. We were then separated from God. Now, there's only one solution to separation, and it's togetherness, okay? There's only one answer to this problem. There's only one way to go back, and that's to be with God again. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. This is the reality of the believer. We have union with Christ. This thing that we're talking about, this alternative reality, we already have it. This sermon is called reality because what Paul is calling us, Paul calling us to do this morning is to just reckon with what is our true reality? What's our situation? We are unified to Christ to be saved, and our union has real practical meaning. Let me pray for us and we'll take a look at the passage. Father, thank you for this beautiful day outside, a reminder, a shadow of what we were created for, to enjoy you. And so in a series where we're talking so much about sin, it can feel maybe discouraging, but Lord, I pray that we look at hope Today, we realize the reality we reckon with. We consider our reality, our relationship to the very source of life. How appropriate as things bud and bloom in our midst. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guide me. I pray that you would guide me in my words. I pray that you'd guide the rest of us here including myself and our hearts, we'd hear what you want us to hear this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I told you last week we'd talk a little bit about union with Christ today. Um, Here's something I read this week, that trying to explain union with Christ fully is like trying to explain the punchline to a joke. Okay, when you explain the punchline to a joke, it kills it, all right? And so we have to be okay with a little bit of mystery here. What I'm going to cover in about two to three minutes, if you want more, here's some resources you can look up. Any good systematic theology will have something on union with Christ. You can look at John Frames, Robert Raymond. They're both good uh, systematic theologies. Even in Calvin and his institutes is a good place to look. But if you're looking for a one-stop shop on union with Christ, there's this book called Union with Christ by Rankin-Wilborn. Rankin-Wilborn. Um, and that is a great resource. In fact, I think Phyllis put that up on our website if you're interested in reading that further. But listen, why are we even talking about union with Christ? Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The basis for what Paul is about to talk about, the basis for everything he's going to say about what we should do with our sin, how we should think about our sin, it's based in the reality of union with Christ. So what's a good definition? Uh, from Rankin Wilborn's book, he says, very simply, the definition of union with Christ is the intertwining of our life with the life of Christ. The intertwining of our life with the life of of Christ. So, think about it this way. Everything that was supposed to happen to us happened to Christ in our place. Do you hear this? The wrath of God, the, the, the punishment for our sins. When we are intertwined with Christ, the things we deserved, He now received in our place. If that's not good enough news, I have more for you. Everything He deserved, we get. There's another fancy word called imputation. This is just one of the many benefits, but this is what Paul is talking about. We are in Christ. He is in us, and there's a reality that comes with it. So let's go back and think about union through the problem of Adam and Eve. Union with Christ is the only answer to the problem that came out of the situation that Adam and Eve created. So Adam and Eve... They were together with God, but now since they chose to go their own way, there is only separation. As we are born, we're unable to undo that separation. And listen, we can't just get, if, if the answer is togetherness with God, we can't get close enough. The toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. It's a mess so the only solution to separation is eternal togetherness. And the only way we can be with God eternally, according to scripture, is to be in Christ and him in us. It's the only solution. There is no good enough. There is no close enough. We have to be one with Christ. And so you might be asking, well, how is union accomplished? To be honest, a lot of the how is shrouded, but here's what God wants us to know about Union. And I can read, I'll read this from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in, in the beloved. Here's what God wants us to know. God wants us to know that he planned union, He wants us to know that he did it, he accomplished it, and he wants us to know that he did it through Jesus Christ. And he did it because he loves us. And so at some level, we have to be satisfied with this fact that there is this reality that's bigger than us, but this reality is the whole reason we are saved in eternity and have Jesus in our lives right now. It's called union with Christ. And Paul, in this section, what he's doing, he's going to emphasize some of the benefits of union and use them as a way to describe how we ought to think about what we ought to do about our sin. Let's take a look here. We'll keep, keep moving through the passage. <clears throat> Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We'll stop there. So. There is, in a sense, kind of two deaths happening here. He's talking about the death of Christ. If you're reading theology, they might call that the first death. He's then talking about the daily battle that we wage with sin, and that's somewhat sometimes called the second death. But here what he's saying is, listen, at the crucifixion of Christ, at the cross of Christ, something real happened. A death sentence was given to our sinful selves. And in some sense, uh, uh, it's a, there's a finality to it. Our sin was dealt a fatal blow. Our sin, our sinful selves, our, our dead men, our dead women walking. Christ's death is our death and with him, a mortal wound has been dealt to our old selves. But look, there's not just this old thing. We know that, that Jesus, as we're saved, just remove. we know he doesn't just remove all of our sin. There's a process to it. And so we see this in the phrase, that sin might be brought to nothing. There's an ongoing sense here. So yes, victories won at the cross. We're not delivered from sin all at once. The dead old man will die a death of what uh, some scholars call a gradual destruction. A gradual destruction. So connecting the power of the cross, connecting that war that we're waging, uh, one of the commentaries in the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. Our old man died, past tense, in Christ, as the scriptures teach. Therefore, it is also to die in us. The mortification takes place through the destruction of the old man. We become partakers of the power of Christ's death for the vanquishing of sin in our flesh. Do you see how past and present are connected? The, the, what Jesus did on the cross is what empowers us now to fight against our sin. Honestly, I think we should thank Paul for the language that he's using here because he's making no bones about it. Our old self being crucified, the destruction of our old self, it's not going to be a pleasant journey. It's not going to be an easy thing. Oh, there it goes another sin. Gone, gone, gone. No. It's a battle. It's a battle. It's excruciating. It's a lifelong process. John Owen, in his book Mortification of Sin, mortification, fancy word for killing, he connects this idea of crucifixion, the experience of being crucified, to the experience of fighting against our sin. Let me read this to you. It's it's an extended quote, but it's worth it. Um, I guess you'll be the judge of that, I suppose. Um, He says this, As a man nailed to the cross, he first struggles and strives, and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. His cries low and hoarse, scarce to be heard. Do you hear the experience here? You've been nailed to a cross. At first, the human will would say, I can fight against this. I can win this battle. I will hold on for dear life. But as your blood goes out and your spirit goes out, you, you slowly but surely give in to suffocation. That's how you die on a cross. He connects this now to fighting sin. He says, when a man first sets on a lust or a distemper to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. But when by mortification, the blood and spirits of it are let out, it moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly and scarce heard in the heart. Now it may sometimes have a a dying pang That makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it is quickly over, especially if it kept be be kept from considerable success. Do you hear the connection? Crucifixion was an excruciating way to die. The killing of our sin is an excruciating process. It's an excruciating process. There's no easy way around it. But here's the thing. The cross of Christ empowers us, motivates us, wins the end victory. It makes no sense not to fight your sin. It's dying. It is dead. So we finish verse 6 and we go to verse 7. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. I love the interpretive choice here. Paul moves from the idea of crucifixion to slavery from sin and freedom from sin. But the word here to be set free is actually the word for justified. Justified. For the one who has died has been justified. Justification is a cornerstone theology, cornerstone doctrine for us and for the Christian church. To be justified in this case is to be set free from sin. And how are we free? Because God sees us and because we are justified in Christ, we are found not guilty. That is our freedom. Let's put it this way. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. Think about what sin did Sin took away or, or took away the, the ability for them to live what they were created to live for. Sin took away that life, that experience one-on-one with God. Sin gave a death sentence. Sin set us on a path of self-destruction. And so what does freedom from sin mean? It means the cross of Christ healed that dividing wound. The relationship is healed It returns us to our original purpose. We are free now to love God and enjoy him forever. Something we couldn't do before. We are free to follow God as Lord again. We could not obey him before, now we are free to do so. What happened to death? It says in verses eight and nine that we will live forever with him. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Future tense. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Adam and Eve walked with the very source of life. They walked with him. I think sometimes we think they were going to live forever because they had such good human bodies. That's not how that works. They were going to live forever because they were with God. That's how that works. God is the source of life. And when you walk with the creator, you gain life from him. Death entered their lives because they were separated from the source. But in Christ, you have to hear this truth, church. I have to hear this truth. In Christ, what are we reunited with? The source of life. The source of life. Christ will never die again. And since we're conjoined to his fate, we're unified with Christ, when we die after the first death, we will live with him forever. Not because we get a renewed body, but because we're face to face with the source of life. That's what justification does, it removes the obstacles. The things we couldn't do before because of our sin, they're done with. We are with God through Christ. In verse 10, he moves more to a present reality. We can live this eternal existence. It's in the future right now, in part. He starts with Jesus. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives He lives to God. So Jesus, there's several truths here, but Jesus, what happened? He died once for all, for all those whom he had chosen, for all those whom would be saved. Jesus died once. He doesn't need to die again for our sins. Its power reached backward to those who believed in the Messiah. It reached forward to all the sins we hadn't even committed yet. It covered all the sins of all God's chosen people. And so Jesus lives now. He lived his earthly life to God. Let's think about how Jesus lived his life. In his preexistence, he lived to God. In the Trinity, everything he thought and did and loved was God the Father. In his earthly life, what did he do? The word that Jesus used the most was the word Father over 200 times. The center of his life wasn't love or money or holiness. The center of Jesus' life was what does God the Father want from me? I want that. He lives even now. He advocates us not with a, a, a group of people. He sits in front of the Father advocating for us. His life even now revolves around God the Father. So Jesus lives to God, for God, for the purpose of his will, the glory of his grace, the salvation of his people. It's all about God the Father, God the Father. And this idea, Paul is laying it out. He's laid out union We're connected with Christ. He's showing us that the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, belongs to us, not because we've done something, because we're in union with him. And he says, here's how Jesus lives, and now he's going to ask us to consider something. Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider the ramifications it has for us. For you, says Paul, since we are unified with Christ, we died with him, we're resurrected with him, and union doesn't just affect our eternity. Think about this, Christianity is not fire insurance. It's not just about making sure that at the end, no matter how we live, that we have this place to go. Union with Christ certainly defines our future, but it also defines our present. It defines our present. We will live with Jesus in eternity, certainly. But we live with him even now. We live with him now. And so we have to recognize the reality of our life, Christian. We have to recognize the reality of our life being regenerated in Christ By grace, through faith, what does it do? It sets our lives apart right now to live to God. Right now. We'll talk about what that looks like in the action phase of our walk next week, but right now, Paul's simply asking us to consider, to reckon, to deliberate, to understand the truth, the reality of our situation. What is it? What's the reality of our situation? Here it is. The condemning power of sin has been broken in our lives praise the lord that's our reality it's not because again we're so strong-willed that we just fight sin not true it's true because Jesus died on a cross and we died with him Jesus rose from the grave and we rise with him Jesus lives now to god he lived then to god he lives in the future to god and we live with him unified it defines our reality. And so what are we free to do? We're free to walk with Christ, to fight our sin tooth and nail. We're free to do it. It's not begrudging. I guess I will. Free. We're free. How can we fight our sin? We can fight our sin knowing that grace is ours and life is ours. That we are not alone. We can enter the lifelong fight. It's going to be lifelong against our sin, knowing with the confidence and the motivation and the reality that the victory is already won. We have an opportunity this morning. Jesus, one of the reasons he gave us the Lord's Supper is that we would remember him. Now, it's not the only thing the Lord's Supper does. It's not just a memorial. But he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to think about the gruesome cross again. Why? What good purpose could that have for us? Well as we think about the grueling fight that we fight daily against sin, we can remember who Jesus is, what he did, what he accomplished, and as we think about that experience of agony on the cross, we know that he can relate to us in our experience of agonizing against our sin. And so this morning, as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we get to participate not only in the bitterness of confession, but the elation of union, <laughs> he didn't just die condemning us, he rose again, and the nourishment of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the battle that lies ahead of us, even this afternoon. And so this morning, if you believe in the battle, if you believe that there's still the old self in there, desiring things it should not desire, pursuing things it should not pursue, the same thinking, the same bad conclusions as Adam and Eve. If you believe that's true, and you believe that Jesus' union with Christ is the only answer to get back to where we were created to be, if you make that profession of faith, you've been baptized, Jesus says, Come and eat. <laughs> Come and eat. Even though you're a sinner, come and eat. Why? Because you are unified with me, not me, Jesus. You get this, right? So this morning, if that is it, if you have confessed your sins and you have received forgiveness, you are welcomed in as Christ is welcomed in. Do you hear that? Not like a second-class citizen. As Jesus is welcomed at God's table, so are you, brother and sister, If you don't believe those things or maybe there's a sin in your life and you think, you know, I don't want Jesus to cover that sin. I like that sin. I want to keep on with that sin. The scriptures make it clear. This is not a good idea to come and eat. There's no point. You don't need need the nourishment if you don't want Jesus. So this morning, coming forward, what does it mean? It means I believe in Jesus. I'm a sinner and I need it. So let's take a moment. Let's. Just have a few moments of silence as we analyze where we're at. I'll draw us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute. Father in heaven, I... I thank you for the doctrine of the spiritual presence. So we teach and believe here at Grace. We believe that uh, by the power of the Spirit, no elements are changing physical chemistry. They're not becoming something, but we know that your promise is that you'd be with us until the end of the age, that when two or more are gathered in your name, you are there. And so we... Believe this morning we are blessed by union with Christ. You are here. You're here even if we yelled at our kids this morning. You are here in the battle against our sins. This sometimes feels overwhelming. You are here. You know you have power and you love us. And so my prayer this morning is that you would bless this time for us as a church family That this would not just be a time to run through the motions of eating the bread and analyzing how good the wine or the juice is, but that we would truly eat and drink knowing that you took upon yourself what we deserved, the broken body, the shed blood. There's bitterness and sadness in that truth. May we eat and drink also knowing that you did so willingly, that you did so with a plan, and that plan was to redeem us. And in return, we get every spiritual blessing in Christ. Impress that truth upon us as we chew this bread and drink this cup. I pray for our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would be a church that continually recognizes we sin, that continually recognizes the battle against sin, that we will continually come back to you as the source, the motivation, the empowerment, the need that we have daily. May our sinful selves be brought to nothing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.